Joining us in the Setsi staff room, we have Joe Malloy. Now, in today's program, we talk about Raspberry Pi Foundation, we talk about e-twinning, we talk about loads, we talk about the blog in the bar. Now, seriously, you're not going to want to miss this. John Heffernan, uh, producer, he's sitting in the background. He turned around to us last week and he said, look, I have another guest for you. I have none other than Joe Malloy. Now, who's Joe Malloy, you might ask yourself? Well, we sent him... Uh, just a quick, uh, the quick running order from from previous uh, staff rooms. I mean, he said, uh, Joe, give us a bit about yourself. And in the rundown, I have Joe Malloy, retired primary school teacher, born in Dublin. But anybody who knows Joe knows there's much more to Joe than that. And I love the opening, um, the opening line of his bio. My late uncle, Tony, taught me how to solder when I was 11 years old, and it had a major influence on my life. I've been interested in electronics ever since. But first of all, Joe, you're very welcome. Like everybody else on the Sessie staff room, I'm going to ask you to open up with your name and uh, who you are and where you're from. Well, my name is uh, Joe Malloy. Um, I was born in Dublin in 1953, a miracle baby of the coup. So... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, more or less, I always wanted to be a teacher, so um, that was it, really. I did what it took to become a teacher, and when I got there, I was very lucky. When I was 18 years of age, my parents bought me a tape recorder, a cassette tape recorder, which is very unusual at the time, and I was able to um, record everything I did. That's very interesting, and I wasn't going to touch on the whole tape recorder side of things, but yeah, let, let me just add on. I, I, I'll, I'll grab up on that now. Let me just add on to the whole Joe Malloy story. So the Sessie Staff Room is an operation now. We're on season two. And when I started or suggested that we're going to start a podcast, wouldn't it be a good idea to start a podcast? Everybody, Joe, and I mean everybody, told me I need to speak to Joe Malloy because he was doing podcasts before anybody was doing podcasts or education podcasts, should I say. So I'm, this is, I'm a bit, I'm, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm starstruck, to be honest, because you've been doing this before anybody was doing this. And I love the fact that you brought that in. I was given a cassette tape recorder for my 18th birthday. And I haven't been recording since. Talk to us about that. We'll talk about the teaching in a minute. Talk to us about the recording um, and that side of, of, of what you're doing, the podcasting. Well, I, I was involved on the fringe side of free, the free radio scene in Dublin. So uh, the pirate radios. And what we used to do was do simple reports, which were signal strength reports, and send them back. So I recorded the programs as they went out and some of them now have made their way into radio ar archives because people just didn't bother recording them at the time or didn't have the facility to record you know the programs as they went out but i recorded my brothers and so on and when i was in teaching practice i recorded the children um i loved dublin accents i'm from dublin and um that was it really i just it moved on from there and how does that bring us to podcasting in schools? Like, what what notion does come come over you when you go? Uh, it's not be a good idea. I think I'll start some podcasting in schools. Well, it didn't really start that way at all. It, it was a tape recorder again. Every school, one of the main things they had was um, one of these ghetto blaster type things, and I just happened to be 
I was asked to go into the learning support role and I went in there and when I arrived in there, it just happened to coincide with the influx of uh, foreign nationals into Ireland and they were coming into schools with little or no English and their parents were in the same boat. So I got children, very good readers in the school to read the text for them in the nighttime and the cassette went home with them and they used it as a paired reading facility. So they would hear a child their own age reading the thing back at the speed they wanted to. They could stop the tape, look at the words, go back and forward and so on. And then over the years then, USB keys came along our thumb drives as we called them at the time. And we put it on, we put it onto thumb drives and the kids went home and recorded it. And then we just started around, I suppose around 2003, then we started putting the, I was doing a master's degree in Bangor and Wales. And uh, I started putting um, recordings up on my own website then. The radio background was, was the plan to create a piece for broadcast or was the plan just record and listen back sort of reflections but sort of learn well in the back of my mind it was all nbq always always not nbq what's nbq um near broadcast quality mm. so i always used good condenser microphones big bottle looking microphones <clears throat> i could actually because you could bring the child and bring the range of the microphone right down to cardioids, bigger rates, wherever you wanted to, and bring the child right close to the microphone. It didn't matter what was going on in the background because you couldn't hear them. So it was great for the room I was in. So um, the quality was usually fantastic. So we did get all sorts of things coming back saying, <clears throat> what are you using? And people, it was like amateur radio. They were saying, what are you using? What are you using to record? And so on. In the beginning, I was using Adobe Audacity, the education, Adobe Audition. And then Audacity came along and I said, look, it's no use using Adobe Audition. It, it costs a fortune. Um, and OK, I was doing a master's at the time. I was able to get it at an education rate. But I switched over to um, Audacity then and start using audacity even though you could only record a single track at a time All the children who, what what sorts of topics are you covering when, when recording because radio and radio in in schools in 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 america is is was always a very big thing it was you had your school radio it's not so much here so whereas over there there was putting together of a package a program and they'd put it out on their college or school radio over here we didn't touch on that so i suppose what i'm asking in a long roundabout way is if like right now we've come full circle so for a time there was no recording in schools really like with no or there was recording but there was no what is the output whereas now the technology is very accessible the cloud is very accessible so what advice do you have for teachers who would like to start off somewhere doing kind of what you were doing. Like, where do they start? Where does one start in a school? Well, essentially we had what were called Nahana uh, Kainte, which were phrases in Irish, and we recorded them every week, and they went out and the children knew what the phrase for the week was. Um, we had other children that came along. If, if a child wrote a poem, they'd be recorded. 
Book Week was really the launch of the whole thing in, in 2003 because the children turned up and they more or less um, did a, a teleplay of their favorite character, it might only be two or three minutes. And then you had children interacting with each other and putting on voices and everything. And they regarded it as great fun. And then they learned about not raising the voice, about enunciation. And uh, having a script was very important because I explained to them, if you didn't have a script, you're going to end up editing out all those ahs and ums and everything else in the background. So, well, anyway, they did learn about editing and audacity, but I explained to them if they have a script, they can stick to it and it helps them then and they, they won't come across words they're not aware of or they can't pronounce. In our first international podcast, um, we had a child there and he used to say the word youth, but he'd missed his front two teeth. He was only in third class <laughs> and he couldn't say youth. And we ended up having to do a workaround solution for him. All those things. Well, what, was, great... what, was the, what was the workaround solution? Um, he was a young boy. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so, like, um, it, it was funny, but uh, that guy went on and he worked on all sorts of things, um, ads on the television and so on. But it's just, it's also, all of this type of thing was a major confidence builder for children. And that's, um, that's something I, 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 I'm going to touch on just from, for others interested in doing something like this. Why would we do, why would we do radio? We don't understand podcasting. We don't understand the radio. Sure. Who would listen to the, the confidence for me to watch a student, a shy student sit down behind a mic press record they're a different person i don't know whether it's red light syndrome or or what but they turn into a different person so radio is a very enabling skill set or the skill to be able to do radio and, and i keep calling it radio but recording yourself for output uh enables enables confidence um to me from the get-go, I, I decided that when children came in, that it was going to be their area. So really from the beginning, I showed them the mixing table. I explained different things like uh, what the various sliders were for and the masters and everything else. So we ended up at the very beginning having a, a technician there who was just one of them. They, they rotated around and we were able to new things and so on. And they learned over, over a few months how to do things and they were their own boss and the most important thing about the podcasting as far as i could say it was an enabling technology and there were children there who were very shy among their peers but when they got in among like minds they just blossomed I, I i just couldn't believe it you know so when you go out and they're talking about oh well we everything should be set to unity gain when we turn off this and lower them the massive volumes and all this business the other kids like they got all sorts of street cred well yard yeah. cred when they went out you know <laughs> so um and kids would come up with ideas for them and say you should do this and you should do that so um you know it got to a stage then where we we approached imro and said i we want to use music and they said right uh we really don't do this and this that and you know i said then um, I'm involved in international competition with each winning and I want to use some background music. And they said, 
fine. They allowed me to do that and I got on to the actual artists and I was allowed to do it. And then they came back and wow. said, okay, we'll give you a certain amount of seconds every day. It doesn't matter what song it is. It can be the latest song you like. You must mention the, the catalog number and artists and so on in your credits. You don't even have to mention it in, in the actual podcast. I still have the letter. So um, it's quite amazing to see what happened. But then again, some of the teachers didn't like it, you see. It wasn't very curricular in nature. It was more commercial than curricular, you know. So, but you know what? It's funny. It's funny you should say that. It's I've seen recording in the recording process used in different ways in different schools, and only recently, like in the last few years, up in a school up here in Clamaris, there was a teacher, Evelyn O'Connor. She used she would never call it radio work. She would never call it radio broadcast. But you you had a blog, and on her blog she recorded. Uh, poems and then those were were broadcast so it's very interesting the direction the recording for output or podcasting or radio it's it's very interesting the direction it can take my favorite um one of my favorites is and i'm i'm saying this for for teachers who who are looking for ideas of of what what could we possibly do um but there was one primary school at at sesicon i believe i heard the teacher going up saying our students record anybody that comes into the school and that gives them a huge amount of confidence. And when I asked, how do you mean records anybody that comes into school? They said, well, if the man delivering the oil is coming into school, the kids are out there with a, with a recorder. And I, I think that's a, that's a huge deal. Um, Joe, I mentioned Ceci Khan there. Talk to me about your involvement with Ceci. When when did it start? When was your first? Um, well, I was transferred on the panel from my school in 1983 over to Lark Hill. And when I was there, I met this teacher and he uh, told me there was a, an actual organization involved. We couldn't remember what it was. And then he came back to me and he told me, oh, there's such and such and they're meeting tonight. And he said, you know, where we, we load all our programs either by cassette or we have to type them in over several days. There's a guy tonight coming down there and he's demonstrating a floppy disk that you can connect <laughs> into the side of the BBC Model B. And it's a single sided 40 track thing. Now, I don't know what it took then about uh, 40K or something like that. I don't know what the, the actual size of it was but we went down that night it was in Belvedere College and um everybody was amazed this thing was just going zoot, 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 and the whole thing loaded up and uh we just sat back and we were amazed and then we were all asked for a 10p and the the old biscuit tin came out and the biscuits were in there in their tea so I paid my 10p for my tea and biscuits that night and afterwards I was asked if I wanted to join Ceci had only had to join for the remainder of the year. So I, I joined then and that in those days you paid for Ceci. So that was uh, the 22nd of November, 1983. The only reason I know was that um, I still have the receipt. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Now, but, uh, uh, John, John, John Heffernan often says uh, you can, you can be on the executive of, of Ceci, you can leave the executive 
obsessive, but you can never leave. It's a bit like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. So, I mean, you went from paying your 10p into joining the executive. Well, what happened was in those days, we were based on, it was a branch based thing. The biggest branch in Session Ireland was the Dublin branch. So I joined the Dublin branch. And you have to bear in mind that uh, I had um, a three-year-old, um, a six-month-old at that stage. So I wasn't racing to every meeting that was going on at the sun. If I could get to a meeting, I got to the meeting. And um, then over the years then, uh, they had the um, student fair that was based in Dublin City University. And I used to just, I didn't take part or anything in that, but I lent a hand there. So I'd go over to DCU and they had the DCU student fair shield. And incidentally, we were the last school, St. Attract, the senior national school was the last school to win the SESI uh, DCU shield. And I handed it back when I retired in 2014. It's funny you mentioned there you had uh, a child three and one who was six months. That's exactly my scenario right now this minute. Yeah. I'm feeling guilty for not being able to <laughs> to, to get to, to get to the meetings or, or do what I'm uh, what I'm meant to be doing. Now you you go from the SESI executive to joining the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Now how like how does one make that jump? Well, no, it was just, I, yeah, I know. Well, the story was um, I was on a career break for from 1992 to 1997. And I uh, sold, uh, sold and supported Acorn machines, which were the BBC machines. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the Raspberry Pi Foundation owns its origin to Acorn and, okay. uh, and ARM, the processor that's in it, the, advanced risk machine processor which is a reduced instruction set computer chip and that was in the um acorns like the risk pcs and so on so i had tracked that all the time so when they closed down acorn and set up element 14 element 14 is the 14th element of the periodic table silicone they were moving to silicon valley and all that so they picked uh, a suitable thing i just tracked that all the time so now here they were being there as a single board computer I signed up for it. So I signed up with Farnell and Radionics, which I had an account with since I was 21. And I waited for the first one to arrive and I still have it here, the very first Raspberry Pi. So that was it. I just was into electronics. I could do anything I liked with it. That's interesting because it brings me back around to the opening line, interest in electronics. Where, how does electronics and Raspberry Pi meet? Because when you say Raspberry Pi to a teacher, or indeed to me when Raspberry Pi came out first, and I don't associate electronics. I associate Raspberry Pi computer. I don't. I also don't associate computers and electronics instinctively. So how 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 is what is the link between Raspberry Pi, the device? I have one. I have the, my office is dotted with them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how 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 do you, how do you associate that and electronics? Well, essentially. It was designed as, you know, as a curriculum tool, as a miniature laboratory. So besides the fact that it, it was uh, a computer, it also had this thing called a GPIO port on it. And this uh, general purpose input-output uh, interface on the side meant that you could control things. It was, it was like the tube port in a BBC. So anybody that knew anything about 
the BBC years ago meant you could go outside the BBC and control all sorts of things. So this appealed to me. So you could control LEDs, you name it. You could do anything you like, traffic lights, uh, relays. Um, and that's, that, that's what interested me. I have presses full of the stuff here. Unfortunately, as probably most people know, um, I was getting ready to go back to school in 2019 and had a heart attack. And that was it, it just, everything stopped. And mm -hmm. I ended up with quadruple bypass. So all this stuff is still, still there. And that was immediately followed by COVID. And that's how I got introduced to Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> because I had to do, when we got two months of cardiac, cardio, uh, cardiac rehab, they did the last month on Zoom. And uh, we were there on, on the floor doing all these exercises and so on. And then the consultant now will come on and everything else. And I said, you know what, I'll run, I'll run the uh, Coda Dojo thing on Zoom. And of course, everybody was enthusiastic in the beginning and eventually just faded and faded and faded away. But um, no, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that um, it's, I think it has loads of potential. Yeah, that's a, it, I think the potential is, I think the potential is huge, frankly, but I struggle to explain to non-users um, non or not necessarily non-techies, because that, that's not fair, but they say, well, I don't see the educational value of, of Raspberry Pis. And although I can see it in my head, yeah. I'm struggling to explain to others, well, you can do. Um, so it's very interesting how, like, wh how would you explain it? How would you explain the educational value of the Raspberry Pi to me? Now, I, in the back of your head, I want you to remember that computer science, we'll talk about that in a second. But as a first time, never used a Raspberry Pi before, I come to you and I say, Joe, wh what is the educational value of the Raspberry Pi? Well, to me, um, I was very lucky. Uh, I ran the Saint Attractus, the SASS Code Dojo, and all the children bought a Raspberry Pi. And then a BBC Microbit came out afterwards. Now we had they were split right down the middle. You had the kids who are really into the Raspberry Pi and they wanted to go on the internet, they wanted to know about Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and everything else. Whereas the other children who were using the BBC Microbit, they wanted to run a few things and see their little LEDs flashing on and off. And it's horses for courses. And I say this to people all the time. You, you literally have to know who you're dealing with, pitch the thing to, towards those. It's no use trying to flog a dead horse. If you've got somebody who's not uh, into the whole technical side of, of the Raspberry Pi, you're wasting your time because they have to be enthused from the beginning. And it's like when you're teaching a child to read in the first sense. You have to make sure that their first venture into reading is success. So when you're doing things with children on the Raspberry Pi, you do the traffic lights and you do stuff and you make sure they're going home with their miniature breadboard and the lights are flashing on and off and they go home to their parents and they pass their enthusiasm on to their parents. But it's definitely horses for courses. There's some children there who will not like it and won't see the potential for it. And that's why the BBC... Uh, they, they, they're actual, the microbit was so successful because um, it took a small size and addressed that side of things. And that's why you have, you have two different things. Now, the Raspberry Pi has gone off and brought out the Pico and so on. 
and that's doing all sorts of nice things. But um, we we've gone to uh, the coolest projects with surveillance things with dots and pictures on walls <laughs> and it's looking at the whole room and it's it's watching grandma while she's there in case somebody robs her stuff and so on um, and it sent messages down off to somebody at home to say oh there's somebody in the house now and all this the kids loved it yeah but, um yeah, you know it's interesting like that and I suppose my question is more like the kids, it's very easy to, uh, and I think it's a very valid point, actually. Some kids will get it straight away and others won't. And I'm famously, and I, I can only speak about myself, really, like put in workshops that I would do with, with other students. But when I look inward, I am famous for not being an early adopter. I looked at the Raspberry Pi and I went, well, I also, mind you, looked at the iPhone and went, I don't see the point of this. Um, so it's the teachers really that I'm getting at. How, how do you explain, and this will bring us into the computer science, um, how, how do you explain to teachers that this device, this device will revolutionize teaching computer science or teaching computers in schools? Well, the, a lot of people have legacy uh, things there like keyboards, monitors and so on, particularly if they're USB ones. And all you have to do is plug them into this machine and it'll work. And on board that machine, you have Python, Scratch. Uh, you have a lot of educational software and it's licensed on that. It, come as, it comes as a package. So when you turn it around, it's actually working from the get-go. Now, I know it's got a volatile memory and so on. So when you turn it off, everything's lost. And you have to reload it every time. But I think that's going to change down the line. Next year or two, we're going to end up with something that'll it'll change all that. But essentially, the form factor and the actual price where it was pitched at, that has more or less decided what the Raspberry Pi has been for the last 10 years because they didn't want to go outside the $25 mark in the United States. They didn't want to go outside the credit card size. But I think the most important thing is to think of the bundled stuff that comes with that. Everything's on it, the full suite. If you want to do word processing, definitely the, the Raspberry Pi 4 now, it, it, to me, it's better than the 286 that I had. <laughs> At the end, the end, the, you know, the 90, the 89, 90, it was, it was better. It's actually better than that, you know. I hear, I hear what you're saying. Um, I'm mesh with, like, in my head, I have to deal with the teacher that says, I want to do typing. I want to do teach typing. We need to get, uh, we need to upgrade our computer room because I want to do teach typing. And I'm going, but you can do that on a Raspberry Pi. And they're going, no, 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 traditional. We need a computer. We need mm -hmm. a box. And, and that's that's a struggle that that all technologists I think have at the minute. So we, you dip in and out. You keep on mentioning Coder Dojo. I think it's worthwhile mentioning to those who don't know what is Coder Dojo. Well, Coder Dojo was. Uh, founded in Ireland. I'd love to tell you who founded it. Now I can't even think of it. I've met both of them on, on several occasions. I'll put it down to senile decay. But um, <laughs> but uh, essentially, it's it's a free club for children over seven, uh, and they're brought in there, and you get adults, and you don't have to be a whiz kid. Now those adults would be essentially there might be one or two people that 
have a fairly good grasp of everything and those adults then help them along as the things go by but the main thing about codadojo is that children it's peer-to-peer -peer learning uh, they teach each other so it's not a threatening environment um, and I know people talk about coolest projects and oh it's very competitive and all that it's absolutely not if you've ever been to coolest projects it is the most enlightening and enthusiastic the uh, event if you ever go to see it they have their own t-shirts and so on and uh they bring up their projects and they discuss them with the children and they made children especially the international one which used to be on in the rds pre-covid they met children from all over europe even though from around the world so to me coda dojo as such was adults who were mainly in the um it industry coming back and showing children uh, what could be done. Now, it's true, there were some adults there and they had all the skills, but they couldn't impart the knowledge. That's where they work with another adult and between the mm, two of yeah. them, uh, the, the information is passed over. But um, definitely, um, you'll see the the actual dojos, dojos who whose parents all work in Microsoft or they work in various IT industries and they're well kitted out and all that. And then you meet the other ones that I was involved in and we were getting uh, hand-me-down computers and so on. There was one weekend I actually went in and showed children how to take a computer apart and put it back together again uh, because they were dropping them all the time. And they, <laughs> and they literally they just weren't used to computers. Yeah, there's, this, yeah. there's such a the digital divide is there and they're, they're, they weren't if you're over on the North Strand and a child sees a computer in school and they're told, oh, you're coming in and you, you have your own laptop today and we're doing this, that, the other, um, they were just shocked. And then essentially when you're doing, let's say, um, wearables, so mm. they were getting LEDs, stitching them up and getting their wire tread and having these things flashing on and off. Um, it was just a, a different world. And the big problem to them was they would go back to school uh, with, with all these ideas and the next week or the week after that you find a teacher coming in on a Saturday and bear yeah. in mind that uh, teachers are very time poor these are well they were then and it's just when somebody gives up their Saturday to come in and you're talking to them about it and they're saying oh it's going to be very hard to try to get that into our school the timetable is so cluttered and the demands on this that and the other and I said unfortunately I said this is an after school <laughs> thing so yeah. timetable doesn't come into it you know so it's just a question of um you know. yeah it's something it's something again i i struggle with time um how how do how do people make time and that's i i'd love to be more involved i love the idea of coded dojos i love the idea of coding being an anti-social it coding tends to be a bit anti-social like if you look at traditional coders in a room like yeah by themselves in the red bull this is a very social coder dojo is a very social thing absolutely for, for, uh, and you've kids. got children who may not have been functioning very well on social skills side of things and then they meet all these like minds and they just you know they absolutely flower in there you just you see them talking tech or they've discovered, oh, I did this amount of code. And they'd say, you know, you could do that in two lines. And this guy yeah. shows him how to do this. It, it's just, and you're there, you're supposed to be the mentor and you realize in your heart and soul, you're only facilitating people. You're the guide on the side. You're no longer this, you know, the sage on the stage, as we used to say. So you're definitely a facilitator in Coder Dojo. 
Um, I think I think we found a we found a name for the for the for this week's podcast, the guide on the side. Um, I do. I see it. I see it myself. Uh, I see the learning myself. Um, a good friend of mine used to say, uh, Bianca Gabagutra, she said, uh, I had a rule in my class, ask three before me, um, which I, I thought was lovely. And Coda Dojo does that. And you see the yeah, children talking to each other. So I, I think if, if any parents or teacher listening, I, I think you could do worse than start a club on a Saturday, um, have a group of kids together, call it a dojo, take a computer, strip it down, start somewhere. Um, and the kids will lead it. The students will lead it themselves. They'll say, well, how do we do this? I see our own here, Mayo East Salt, uh, East Salt Mangan, what, what she's doing amazing yeah. things. Um, our own Pam O'Brien down, down John's neck of the woods, uh, their Coda Dojo pre, um, Pre-COVID was doing was doing amazing things as well, and they had a real community feel to it. Like to hear Pam talking about it, and I know she won't mind me saying this, but it's like the final Coda Dojo. They got pizza in, and it, it was it wasn't yeah, about coding. It, 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 it is it is social events, and yeah. when Christmas comes, it, it's like everything else. The, the, the meeting before Christmas is very little coding done. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, no, course, I, I, I I do remember you saw another our daughter came in that day, and um, she was. Showing teachers stuff that like teachers didn't know. This is at the SESI conference in 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 Pats, and um, no, it's it's like everything else. It's a question of building confidence. Now we uh, still have the gender divide, and all uh, I used to do a lot of school dojos, and I, I worked in the UCD code of dojo, and even there, there was always sort of. Um, uh, two to one at the, you know, at least three to one boys versus girls. And the girls mm-hmm. then, of course, they tended to do, um, you know, their own thing. They didn't mix very well with boys. They were there. They definitely wanted to be there. And yeah. of course, then as they get older, then um, the divide even gets worse. <laughs> I want to move straight. John is poked us with his, oh, this, uh, yeah. with, with his poking stick going, we're 30 minutes in, 30 minutes in. So I want to talk about uh, e-twinning. Uh, you're e-twinning ambassador, on, or you were e-twinning ambassador until yeah. 2013. Well, e-twinning was the electronic twinning of, of schools. Um, essentially, it was, it's part of the Erasmus Plus now, but in those days, it was a standalone thing run by Lergus. You'll find information on lergus.ie or eTwinning.ie, or uh, even Schoolnet. Um, you can check out any of those websites. But the most important thing about it was that uh, it uh, brought schools together. And I was asked by Lergus, you're saying, oh, you're doing podcasting, what's podcasting? And I said, well, actually, I only heard it called podcasting the other day uh, <laughs> by uh, a chap that's selling um, Apple machines down in Cork. So. <laughs> I said, um, uh, all I'm doing is I'm exchanging files, we're telling stories and we're, cha- we're exchanging files. And she said, I think that is a great idea. Would you come and come to our stand in Linz in Austria and explain it to people? So I went over there in 2006 and we gave the presentations to people. And just as we were closing then, this woman from Malta comes up to me and we're giving everything away, our free pens and our little free radios and everything. And uh, I'm handing these out to her. And I said, 
this would be a great idea. One island nation talking to another, one on the edge of the Atlantic and one in the middle of the Mediterranean. And um, that was in January. I thought nothing else about it. And then coming towards the end of summer, I decided then I'd got all the project together and I put it up on, on the net and this thing comes back. This little analysis comes back from Malta. And it was this teacher from Malta in her primary school and said she'd go ahead and we do this and we tell stories. So we called the project Once Upon a Blog. Uh, it was better than where we in, where we were known. The parents used to jeer us because we set our studio up in the old disabled toilet and that was called the, bog, the, the blog in the bog. So <laughs> Once Upon a once upon a blog was much better. And so we got this whole thing together. And um, before we knew what was happening, we ended up uh, with literally, when I, I had my own site, slua.com, and slua was a multi user, uh, a mug WordPress. So I had about eight people working on it. It was the first one out. I think uh, Simon Lewis came along after that and really took off with the multi-user end of things mm. and um, we had teachers coming in and putting their uh, various files on so I showed her how to do it and in those days uh, what we did was we arranged through I can't remember the man's name now but we flash meeting which was a facility uh, that the Open University offered to educational institutes so I set it up and I trained her over that before I knew what was happening other people were coming in and we had sessions on there twice a week with anything up to 12 or 13 people learning how to use WordPress. Really, it went on from there. We ended up in the finals then in Brussels and we became second in Brussels. But one of the things was I got to visit Malta. She was to come over to visit our school, but it didn't happen. And um, no, it was just it was amazing because we had no idea the actual I my service provider collapsed when we went to Europe, they thought it was a denial of service attack oh, <laughs> on the whole system because they came from all over the place. And uh, that was it. We, we really enjoyed it. And um, we did loads of things on the side. A lot of stuff, we, a lot of recordings we did were never published because we just didn't have the bandwidth and the storage for it. Mm. And that's the most important thing. Nothing is free. Skullnet hadn't um, arrived at the time. And uh, the other thing, too, was that the even the facility for each winning, they couldn't cope with what I was doing. They just wow. went, they weren't able to take the bulk of what I was doing. So I set up my own site. And we, I called it Slua because it was obviously a CIH for uh, a crowd, but also uh, it was also play on words it's also the Irish for host so oh, very uh, good. yeah so um we just sort of but that lasted for ages and the only big problem I had I had to pay for it all the time and how, how did you get over that like was there anybody was there any support for you no. how did you pay for all that by the way is it all yourself or was there any funding no. available or? what happened was we charged in the school to okay. do the after school activities so the kids bought the mixers and the microphones and everything they didn't oh, wow. know they were, they didn't know they were buying it. they thought i was pocketing all the money <laughs> i was actually just going i was going out and buying all this stuff they probably thought it was the schools but uh, essentially they were buying the microphones and the angle poise holders mm -hmm. and mixers you name it 
they bought everything. And for a while they were contributing to the site, but um, like in the latter years then when you needed secure socket layers and certificates and everything, it just became very, very expensive. So I just called it a day then, especially- after I was just going to say, and it, it, it kind of just to like, where's all your work to date? What, what, it's where gone. Can, okay. And where, where is it gone, Joe? Well, we fell foul of GDPR really. We had a load of stuff on site. Now we obviously we, we had our usual uh, internet permission slips and so on for the children to take part. But it's a funny thing when children get older, some of them love to look back at, at themselves and others don't. And then you had children. It depends on your ethnicity and religious outlook and so on. We found mm. out, for instance, that as uh, Muslim girls got older, their parents were very, very protective and didn't want them and stuff. So we found ourselves deleting things and like i'd left i'd retired at the stage this was happening and then i found out that the the child that did all the headers and all their um podcasts who said welcome to meadowbrook school radio and all the music was running in the background and it would fade out and we'd say what we're doing this week and so on he was in a stabbing incident and he bled out and died and i couldn't believe it so i just decided that's it i just deleted them all so and is that like that you told me off offline that that was a huge reference uh a reference site for people to use i mean it's a shame that it's all gone now and i i mean that it was a shock to me because um you do things and you have no idea the effect you're having on other people especially if you're doing it on a european platform so I had no idea that somebody, let's say, in Italy was saying, oh, I've seen this on slew.com forward slash, um, you know, tune and og or something like this. And they would expect that file to be there when they yeah. go. And it never entered my head. I never bothered looking at the traffic or anything. The only thing I worried about was comments. And like you could have a hyperlink on it full stop. So when it used the Kismet and so on to get rid of all these um, spam and everything else, some okay. of them would slip through. So you'd be looking along and you'd see a different color full stop and you'd click on that full stop and somebody was selling pra fake Prada bags and everything, all this. And it just, it was constant maintenance. And of course, mm -hmm. then you had, like we were hacked then, I was going to give um, a training course to principals in Malta. So on WordPress and so on, how to, so we arrive over there and Connor Galvin, we're, we're, we're downstairs and I go up and Connor says, you, you won't believe this, but your site is blocked by the Department of Education here. They have enough, mm. they have a different type of policy. They don't blacklist sites, they whitelist them. So you have to put into the whitelist. So literally 20 minutes before I started to give my talk, my site was whitelisted. And then I went ahead and I gave the, um, presentations to principals but one of the funny things about that was in europe was the principal goes home and then just nominates somebody who hasn't been at the course to go ahead and set up the, the blog or the podcasting site so suddenly people start coming back to me and i had this woman coming back anastasia and she said i'm okay. going to do this thing on caroling in europe and mm -hmm. i want i want to know how to do it so we set up the flash meeting got people in and this other woman came on and 
she was from Romania and I went through the whole thing with her. And at the end of the thing, she stayed online. I said, look, what we'll do is we'll switch to Skype because we're having latency problems with people and satellites. The uplink seems to be fast enough, but the downlink could come back in next week. You know? So yeah, yeah, poor yeah. Chap, the chaps in the middle of the country and they were trying to conduct a two-way conversation. It just wasn't happening. So we switched to Skype, individual Skype connections. And on that, that, that woman, Liliana Michelacci is now Lily O'Reilly. She married an Irishman. She's living now uh-huh. to Dublin. But that's the way things go. People were delighted to get the um, the actual tuition mm. because it would appear in most places you have to pay for it. Whereas I was always free with my information and the way I did stuff and passed it out and so on. So I was quite, it was to me, I got more out of it than I put into it. That's the way it worked for me. You know? On a personal note, I think, um, just with regards to what you were saying there, and the, the amount of stuff that's on the website that you've taken down, I think it's a shame that that is just going nowhere, or at least should go somewhere, or we should figure out a way to archive it. So let's reach out to some people and see what can be done. Because it's a shame just to let it, let it be well, gone, if you know what I mean. Well, there's just funny things like, um, like we children there and we were connecting with Gibraltar and she taught the people that live in Gibraltar were called giblets. So that's one of our um, <laughs> giblets or something she called it. And it was one of those one-liners that we kept in that people just laughed at all the time. And it was just to think that all these people are adults and probably married with children and all. Um, that's again I could stay talking to you forever and ever and ever Joe thank you very much for joining us on the staff room Um, and of course if there's anybody out there that wants to reach out to you Joe to figure out what you're doing or maybe ask you some questions is that is that still a thing oh yeah absolutely I'll be I'll be on sort of watching the conference now next weekend um, of course, yes, and we, we kind of, we, there's no kind of about it, we do have to mention the CESI conference is next weekend, so we want to see you there, all our details are on www.cesi.ie. The amount of content, the amount of stuff that's covered in CESICon is, is huge, it's a wide breadth of stuff. I don't know of anybody that's actually gone to CESICon that's been disappointed. So we, we want to see you there. And as regards to the SESI staff room, uh, teachers out there, if you want to get involved, then by all means, let us know. We provide the platform. Um, if you have anything you want to you want to put forward, if you like what Joe uh, what Joe has done, what Joe is doing, then you you know you can always reach out to us here at the SESI staff room because we have the platforms, we have the technology, and we'd be more than happy to get you kicked off. So if you wanted a segment in the SESI staff room, something your students are doing, uh, something your school is doing, by all means, we, we we'd love to hear from you. Um, don't forget, you can get us on the SESI website www.sesi.ie. You can get us on Twitter at SESI tweets. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Hassan um and uh, ask us reach out to us we, we'd, we'd love to we'd love to hear from you uh so until the next time uh talk to you and uh take care till then